0: What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome Ooh. back. It's episode two of Beyond the Talk, season two.
1: And we are your hosts, Klysha and Kristen. And welcome back to another episode. If you're new, welcome. Um, this is Beyond the Talk, and we are the cornerstone for solutions to problems in marginalized communities.
0: Yeah, so you already know how we come in. We give the problem. Talk about how we got here, and finally focus on some solutions to move forward and build a better community. So let's get started because we got a lot to be mad about. I got a lot to be mad about. I got a lot to be, be mad
1: about. Mad
2: about.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so. This month is special because it is Women's Month, and we wanted this episode to reflect that.
1: So we often like to say that black people are not a monolith, Um, and so we do want to note that this episode examines how black women's oppressive experiences due to their gender, race, class, and sexual orientation um, can intersect and have an impact on our health. And um, what does that impact look like based on the context of Capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy, um, so there's a lot of intersectionality and isms, but we are definitely looking at this through the lens of women, um, being that it's Women's History Month, and specifically through the lens of Black women because we are Black women. Yes, yes,
3: and <clears throat> damn proud of it.
0: Okay, and <laughs> uh, now many of you might still be wondering what is intersectionality, and so we thought, why not have the founder? Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw break down the intersectionality concept in ways it can help us understand inequality better.
4: Intersectionality is just a metaphor for understanding the ways that multiple forms of inequality or disadvantage sometimes compound themselves and they create obstacles that often are not understood within conventional ways of thinking about anti-racism or feminism or whatever social justice advocacy structures we have. Intersectionality isn't so much a grand theory. It's a prism for understanding certain kinds of problems. African-American girls are six times more likely to be suspended than white girls. That's probably a race and a gender problem. It's not just a race problem. It's not just a gender problem.
1: So before we go any further, let's make this clear what this episode is and what it isn't. This is not a man bashing session, okay? okay? We wanna be abundantly clear on that. This is not just two black women up here bashing men saying, y'all niggas ain't shit. That's not what this is. And this is not um, the Oppression Olympics. And it's not the Oppression Olympics. So when we post this on social media, don't get in these comments trying to talk about how you're more oppressed than the next man because we we blocking you. Okay? We're not gonna block you because we want you to still listen and learn, but we're gonna delete your comment. Okay. Um, but we wanna make that abundantly clear. This is not. man bashing session Um, it's a dialogue about intersecting identities of women of color and how the patriarchy shapes and impacts those identities so just a disclaimer it's a disclaimer and
0: the patriarchy isn't the only thing impacting us and isn't the only thing we talk about we definitely talk about white supremacy uh, capitalism and how those you know form together to uh, create a unique experience for black women Mm -hmm. so Keep that uh, disclaimer in your mind before y'all get in your feelings about the facts because like we said, we are a solution-based podcast and in order to get to the solution, we have to present the facts of the problem. And the fact is black women's health as a whole is overwhelmingly negatively impacted by gendered racism, homophobia, transphobia, and the phobias and the isms go on and on. But studies show that on average, black women develop cardiovascular disease at a younger age that, than our white counterparts. And we even begin to see those risk factors at an earlier age. So I can't help but wonder if there's, you know, a relationship between numbers in the trauma and adversity black women go through um, and specifically the trauma and the adversity we go through as a result of these ca- compounding forms of discrimination and how that compounded trauma caused our cells to change earlier. Like that, and that, that there has been talks around, is there a connection, you know, genetically um, to the environmental impacts that we're, we're seeing today? So yeah, I know that was a little all over the place, but just to try <laughs> to give you an insight of how these forms can impact our health. And so when we begin to look at intersectionality through the lens of being a being black and being a woman, we start to see that we're fighting a two-front war. But then you add also being trans or queer or low-income, these experiences begin to get a lot more complex, but they are still just as important to understand.
1: Yeah, and a lot of you may not know this because issues that um, – center around trans women and especially trans women of color are often left out of the mainstream media. But in 2021, so just last year, um, a human rights organization tracked um, violent crimes or murders that took place that involved trans women and trans women of color. Um, and they noted that just in 2021 alone, there were 28 transgender or gender non-conforming people that were killed And I'm willing to bet that that number is a little higher. Maybe that's just what this organization tracked. Mm -hmm. Um, But out of those 28 people, 20 of them were black or brown trans women. And so, I Mm. mean, that's kind of a staggering. I'm not going to sit here and mentally convert that into a percentage, but I feel like that's kind of a staggering number to say that out of 28 transgender people that were killed, 20 of them were black or brown trans women. Um, And that's just, again, that's just what this organization tracked. So there's so many crimes against women that go unreported. And I Mm -hmm. think crimes against trans women just compounds on top of that. And so that's a form of erasure that we don't ever really hear about. But I'm gonna let y'all know right now, that's something that we don't condone here at Beyond the Talk, okay? Yeah, because
0: if we're talking about protecting all black women, that includes black trans women and every other black woman that doesn't fit your ideal of what a black woman is supposed to be
1: uh yeah weird. especially if you're not a woman you don't really have the um you may have the audacity but i don't think you have <laughs> Come on, say de, say the credentials <laughs> <laughs> to define womanhood <laughs> Come on, so. de say, how do you say <laughs> get the fuck out of my face okay so with that we want to make that very clear moving forward into this episode when we talk about the issues yes. that surround intersecting identities of black women we are including black trans women because trans women are women? Yes. If you I- don't like that, baby, you could you could click off. Okay. okay? You and, and, and another thing. <laughs> <laughs> and one more thing.
0: <laughs> Facts. So now, how did we get here? How did you get here? To be here. That- We're not gonna take you through everything, but we hope to bring up a few pivotal points in history that showcase intersectionality in a variety of ways and its impact on Black women while also providing some real-life experiences from some beautiful Black women in our lives.
3: Pretty much every unit I went to, I was either one, the only female, or one of very few females until, you know, my last few units, I was around a lot of females. Um, and I always was told that I couldn't do certain things. Um, hmm. And then I would get out there and prove them wrong. There were times that some of my reports would come back, my physical fitness stuff would come back, and I would have a low score. And I was like, why is my score so low? And look at it, they graded me as a male instead of a female. Wow. Okay. Yeah, they, I guess they figured it, I, I couldn't have been a female scoring that level. Wow. So, they, they graded, so I'm like, wait a minute, I should have 300 on my PT test. Why do I have 275? And they had graded me on the male scale instead of the female scale. So they had to send it back. <laughs> it's like,
1: oh, wow. Um, Let's take a look back to see how we got here. So we're going to start in slavery and pre-colonial periods when black women were um, and a lot of places in charge in different kingdoms and tribes in different places in Africa. I think one thing that's really worth mentioning when we were doing research that I thought was really interesting is that many times there weren't necessarily matriarchal societies. Because when we think of the patriarchy, I guess we would think of the matriarchy as kind of the antithesis of that. But more so than matriarchal societies, there were matrilineal societies. Mm. And what a matrilineal society is, it basically means that the ancestral lineage of an individual or of a family is traced through the mother instead of the father. And so mm. when you look at um, like property being passed down, land being passed mm. down, titles being passed down, it's passed down from mother to daughter instead of father to son. And I think that that just goes to show how important women were in society to where like it wasn't even a second thought to where like when right. my mom dies, I get her land instead of being married off to right. some man that I don't know that paid for me when I was super young. And But um, matrilineal oh, yeah. societies were really important in a lot of parts in Africa. And if we look at the state of womanhood in Africa prior mm. to colonization, there's a few queens I think are worth Recognition. Um, I think a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, but the main warrior queen that most people know about is Queen Anna Nzinga. Um, and she was known to be very intelligent and very masterful in her tactics. And there is also Queen Amina of Nigeria. And in her heyday, she commanded an army of 20,000 men. So <laughs> you already know the vibes. Um, But she was really uh, pivotal for expanding territories in Nigeria. And she actually, there's a statue of her in front of the National Arts Center in Lagos. Wow. So if you're ever in Lagos and you see that statue, that's Queen Amina. Actually, Queen Nzinga, I want to tell y'all because I said she was very skillful and tactical. So she met with... um, I want to say like a general from spain or portugal and he tried to pull this tactic on her Mm -hmm. where when he met her there was only one chair in the room and he was sitting in the only chair in the room so he wanted to make her feel like she was not important or he wanted to make her feel like she had to beg for whatever you know what she did Mm -hmm. and when i read this i was like yes queen give us everything she had one of her slaves kneel on all fours and she sat on his back for the duration of the meeting to show that Spanish general, like, we're equal. We we are equal, we are, uh, you're not above me. I am a queen, you on my land. So, um, in pre-colonial times, the role of black women, not just in Africa, but in different places around the world, um, was very pivotal in a lot of cases. And I think that sort of reflects what we see in modern times as well. But also we do have the very ugly issue of slavery yeah. and reconstruction that we faced here in the United States. Um, and when we talk about that, we can't talk about slavery and reconstruction without talking about Sojourner Truth
2: and her Ain't I a Woman speech. Well, children, where there is so much racket, there must be something out of kilter. I think that twixt the Negroes of the South and the women at the North all talking about rights, the white man gonna be in a fix pretty soon. But what's all this here talking about? That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages, and lifted over ditches, and to have the best place everywhere. (laughs) Nobody ever helps me into carriages, (laughs) or over mud puddles, or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as any man when I could get it. And I could bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children, seen most sold off into slavery. And when I cried out with a mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? And they talk about this thing in the head. What is it they call it? Oh, that's that's right, yeah, intellect. (laughs) That's it, honey. Well, what's that got to do with women's rights and Negroes' rights? If my cup won't hold but a pint and y'all holds a quart, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have my little half measure full? That man in the back there, he says, women can't have as much rights as men, cause Christ wasn't a woman. Well, where did your Christ come from? (laughs) Where did your Christ come from? He came from God and a woman. Man didn't have nothing to do with it.
0: Yes, so now we have to talk about the part that we always, almost always have to start with when we discuss any issues surrounding the black experience within America which is slavery and reconstruction. So yeah we start with Sojourner Truth's speech because I think this is where we can see the first sign of how racism and sexism intersected to lead to the erasure of black women um, in the first wave of feminism you know this woman suffrage movement we hear so much about and Uh, the great movement of uh, the 1920s where white women got the right to vote. um, And black women didn't get the right to vote until 1965. And so that's that's the racism part. But the sexism part comes in because black men were able to vote in the 1870s. So this led to the political stronghold. We see black men having politics. Uh, even back then and I could argue today but I could argue that we do see a lot more black men in powerful positions Mm -hmm. before we see black women and I think that has to do with uh, the way in which voting rights were developed back in the day Um, and so that's just interesting, it's, you know, and yeah. because a lot of during the 1870s, when they did get power, what happened in the 1900s? We started seeing black mayors, mm-hmm. black senators, and they were all men. men. They were all men. And then these m- movements, we'll get into that a little later, the Civil Rights and Jim Crow movement, but I think it that had a lot to do with the political movements of that time as well.
1: Yeah, and I think, too, when we talk about, like, releasing ourselves from oppression i think we have to at some point both men and women have a discussion of how sexism is a construct of white supremacy yes and how in pre-colonial era yeah there were patriarchal societies in africa and in asia i'm sure Mm -hmm. but to the degree that it is where women don't have the rights of our own bodies or our own reproductive systems to where uh rape culture and how rampant that is like All of those Mm -hmm. things are symptoms of a disease of white supremacy. And I think the day that we really have that conversation, I think we'll we'll really start to make some headway on these these problems.
0: It'll be some real solidarity where we can stop bumping our heads on Mm -hmm. this black men, black women debate. It's like, no, it's really just we have unique experiences and they show up in different ways to oppress us. And the patriarchy is in your favor to where you will never experience certain things associated with sexism.
1: I think I, I kind of, when me and my boyfriend have these conversations, I kind of liken it to white supremacy and white privilege and how it doesn't mean that you are inherently bad as a white person. It just mm-hmm. means that the world is set up for you to succeed. Right. And so when we talk about the patriarchy, it doesn't mean that men are inherently bad. Despite Come on despite <laughs> bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. <laughs> but but it means that the world is set up for you because you are a man um mm-hmm. and like i said when we start to have that conversation i think you know we'll start mm. to get somewhere but
0: yeah let's not even get started on the physical and emotional trauma that black women faced as a result of the evils of right slavery
1: and we I think we said this last episode, whatever we know about slavery, it was always 10 times worse. always And so um, when you look at black women having children and their children being ripped from their arms, like to be sold to another plantation, like imagine like pregnancy and childbirth is already hard, but imagine carrying a child for nine months and then knowing the entire nine months that like three days after you have this child is going to be mm. given to someone else. And then, um, so there's like kind of the psychological trauma of that. And then even in a a broader aspect to talk about, um, we learned that women in Puerto Rico between the 30s and the 70s went through these forced hysterectomies. And Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico at one point was the largest um, population in the world for hysterectomies and sterilization of women. And ultimately out of these practices, Um, Puerto Rican women became the guinea pigs for the first birth control which came out about in the 40s 50s and 60s Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's a compounding intersection of sexism for these Puerto Rican women Mm -hmm. leading to capitalism leading to Mm -hmm. women being in the workplace and and being able to be sterilized so you can have your one kid and then you never have to worry about it again and you could just yeah. work and you could just make right. money. And, and even
0: though that was after slavery, it's still good to bring up around this point because there were also forced sterilizations of um African American women who were slaves. And so imagine that that uh psychological trauma of one going through the pr- birth and surviving it, because mm-hmm. back in the day there wasn't; it was hard to survive childbirth. Right. So on top of all of that, and then you give me a hysterectomy. Uh, the father of gynecology, for instance, th- he was known for performing these crazy experiments on slaves. Mm-hmm. And so it's just it just it's perfect to bring up because that even though that was shortly after slavery, it just shows you how that compounding effect can continue on into modern day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so,
1: and so when we look at the medical ramifications of sexism and racism, um, homophobia, transphobia, um, so you fast forward to modern day and it's statistically proven that African American women undergo more hysterectomies than their white counterparts due to fibroids and um, ovarian cysts and things like that. And uh, all of these hysterectomies are potentially treatable by like less aggressive procedures. And I think that leads into kind of like the exploitation of women, especially in, in uh, marginalized communities and impoverished areas. Cause we mm-hmm. talked about how you go to the doctor, you know, and if you don't know much about your own reproductive health or your own body, a doctor is likely to say, you know, you just, let's just take your uterus mm-hmm. out. And you're like, well, they know what's best for me. Um, right. And ultimately it's just exploitive, exploitative, yeah however you say it. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's listen to um, Bell Hooks' May She
0: Rest in Power.
5: Mm-hmm. I think she
0: um, describes beautifully what we mean by you have to explore all of these forms of discrimination and account for all of them when you're trying to understand how um, that is experienced by black women.
5: I began to use the phrase in my work white supremacist capitalist patriarchy because I wanted to have some language that would actually um, remind us continually of the the interlocking systems of domination that define our reality and not to just have one thing be like, you know, gender is the important issue, race is the important issue, but for me the use of that that particular jargonistic phrase was a way, a sort of shortcut way of saying all of these things actually are functioning simultaneously at all times in our lives. And that if I really want to understand what's happening to me right now at this moment in my life as a black female of a certain age group, I won't be able to understand it if I'm only looking through the lens of race. I won't be able to understand it if I'm only looking through the lens of gender. I won't be able so, to yeah, understand it if I'm only Bell Hooks discussing
0: white, how white these white. interlocking forms of discrimination Domination must all be considered for us to understand um, the impact they have on black women's experiences. And I think this is a perfect segue into what these experiences look like during the Jim Crow civil rights era. And, you know, one of the biggest things we see in this era is the lack of notoriety for black women in the forefront of civil rights movement. Mm. And when we talk about the civil rights movement, of the 50s and 60s, we're often taught that men like Dr. King, Malcolm, Huey P. Newton, Fred Hampton, um, Stokely Carmichael, um, but the role of women like Kathleen Cleaver, Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, Elaine Brown, those names are often left out or only given one or two paragraphs in the textbook. And so already, even in learning about our fight, for liberation and equality we are still taught about it through the lens of the patriarchy which in and of itself is oppressive is a form of erasure and when we look at the struggle for freedom from that angle of intersectional identities the work of women within the lgbtq um, community is talked even less um, so women play such a huge role in the liberation movement during this time um, it gives us, it gives ways to so many of our modern day notions of intersectionality identity. That's because they paid a pivotal role in feminism. In and in we would probably say black feminism because we were erased out of that, too, mm-hmm. of, of regular feminism during that time.
1: Yeah. So when we talk about these movements in the 50s and the 60s, um, one movement that doesn't get talked about in broader communities, I know the LGBT as being a part of the be in the lgbt i know that um, right now girl. <laughs> the stonewall riots do get talked about a lot within <laughs> that community but within the broader community the stonewall riots of 69 don't get as much play as they should for real for mm-hmm. real so so uh the stonewall riots took place in uh, new york city in 1969 um and this was new york city was one of the small places in the country where the LGBT community had some semblance of freedom. And when I say some semblance of freedom, I mean very little, if any at all. Because um, during this time in the country, uh, being gay or trans or just being a member of that community was often considered a crime that was punishable by jail or very, very heavy fines and fees. And not only were there legal ramifications, but society was not at a point where it is now, where um, You know, people are Uh pretty accepting for the most part, Um, but the assault and murder rates for people within this community were way higher than they are today, if you could believe that. (laughs) Um, But so although New York City wasn't necessarily super progressive, um, it was a little easier for people in the LGBT community than, say, like, if you were living in Alabama or mm-hmm. even if you were living in North Carolina and you happen to be a member of that community or some other conservative states. But right. it's worth mentioning that many people within the LGBTQ community don't like to use the term riot. When we talk about Stonewall, many people would refer to call to it, call it as an uprising, which so basically the Stonewall Inn was a gay club in New York City. And although the club was a gay club, honestly, it catered more so to gay white men more than any other demographic. But people within the community of all types mm. frequented this club. And it's important to note that the club was owned by the Italian mafia. Okay, so you know the vibes already. Y'all y'all picking up what I'm putting down. The mob. The mob. So I think it, honestly, I think it really speaks to the exploitation of marginalized communities because the mafia made money off of this community, but they offered no protection to these individuals, Mm -hmm. right? So police still did shakedowns and shit like that. They were very frequent. And oftentimes um, when the police would come into the club to do these shakedowns, they would search people. And the searches that these people had to go through really honestly stripped them of a lot of personal autonomy. And it was a gross violation of just their bodies, really. So- there was a lot of tension built up on the night of the Stonewall uprising, um, just from all of the stuff that had been going on Mm -hmm. at the time. So basically, there are conflicting reports. So let's keep in mind that revolutions and movements can be messy. So there are conflicting reports, but the stories typically run around the same vein, right? So basically, um, police shakedowns used to happen earlier in the night. And on this particular evening, they came later in the night. So everyone was kind of confused. So tonight was the night that people were just kind of like fed up. Like it was a lot of tension. They was kind of just already done with it, fed up. So when the police came into the bar, the patrons refused to be searched. They refused to leave. They were tired of the oppression basically they they were done with it i'm motherfucking time, they said i'm motherfucking time in here to have a good time i'm in here and also it's worth noting that there are people who are still alive who were there that night and they said that the stonewall Inn not only was it not the only gay bar in new york city but their drinks was watered down okay Ooh, like, they won't even they It wasn't weren't even, even that girl it wasn't <laughs> even given for real for real so the people had just had enough um, so when the police began to make arrests, they started kind of roughing up the patrons that were in the bar and a crowd began to gather outside. And like we already said, tensions were high. So when we talk about women and we talk about women in the forefront of these movements, we have to mention Stormy De La Veray which i think is how you pronounce her last name she was really the catalyst to this whole night um so she basically got arrested and while she was getting arrested the police were roughing her up so she was this very masculine presenting lesbian who frequented the club and as she was getting arrested as she was getting abused by these police officers she basically called out to the crowd and was like are y'all gonna do something like why are y'all just standing there like do something and um they 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 stepped behind stormy honey Then people i'm gonna stick beside her they Behind huh, her. And then that, of course, spiraled into what we now call um, the Stonewall Riots or the Stonewall Uprising. And so when we talk about the role that women play in the civil rights movement, and all these different movements, we have to mention the women of the LGBTQ community. So we mentioned Stormy, but we can't leave out Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who are also very prolific this night. Um, And they were known as drag queens back then. Of course, we still have drag queens today, but today they're hailed more so as trans icons, trans feminist icons, because of the role that they played in the Stonewall Uprising.
0: Yeah, so we just kind of wanted to present another example where black women were disregarded in these movements so Mm -hmm. this was happening at the same time of the 60s you know when everybody was going for civil rights and you know so it wasn't only black men disregarding black women in the movement it was the lgbtq community disregarding not only black women but other women of color Mm -hmm. so Uh, I think this, this was important to mention because like we said in the beginning, like we, for all black women. So while, you know, Kristen is the B in LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. I am the ally. I'm the, I guess the A, (laughs) Um, you know, and so while we might not get everything accurate and I, I would encourage anybody listening to this that, you know, that is a part of that community and feel like we missed something or, we didn't really do something justice please let us know because we're always trying to just push forward the fact of history and undoing erasure mm-hmm. that's just what we kind of wanted to do in this and really show how erasure can impact us physiologically not mm-hmm. just mentally not just culturally but it will come at a cost somehow some way and you know it it doesn't matter what type of black woman you are okay we're here for you
1: that's (laughs) beyond the talk is here for you right okay and we actually we actually allow black women okay (laughs) a quiet black woman all black women we actually wanted to reshoot this segment because when we went back to edit and listen we both decided that we just didn't do it justice right Mm -hmm. and so if we're talking about rooting for everybody oppressed if we're talking about leveling the playing field and equity for all black people all black women we had to come back and and give y'all stonewall the best way that we possibly could and we're still learning so much Mm -hmm. because again a lot of the topics we talk about here like they don't teach us about this stuff in school um and maybe it's getting better now because society's more progressive. I didn't learn about Stonewall when I was in yeah, school. Yeah, I did. I... maybe Gen Z got it, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Millennials didn't get it. So yeah, and I think we're kind
0: of more understanding, coming to understanding with this and what has been happening in recent times are what we've been learning about black trans women and suicide and how it's on the rise among you know black LGBTQ youth, mm-hmm. um, who are women specifically. Mm-hmm. So well yeah, that was just a little a little glimpse into, you know, how moments during the civil rights and Jim Crow era kind of we begin to see how, you know, sexism and racism um and classism for real, we we I feel like classism is just something that seeped into all of this because mm-hmm. a lot of times we're either working class or low income and even like in these areas, in the civil rights Jim Crow time, but even when you had money, and you had access to certain things, you were still discriminated against because of your race. So when classism wasn't a problem, then you had racism and sexism be a problem. Um, and now even in the, in modern day, we see that the higher income, the more likely you are to experience health problems because now you're working harder, Mm -hmm. to get half as much
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, or to get the same amount but still experience the racism and sexism and so yeah it's it's crazy so yeah let's talk about post-civil rights which is now we just did what did you do the math like how much are we past the Um,
1: the civil rights era so uh, not much (laughs) like like 40 some or i want to say like between 30 50 and 60 years maybe yes i mean the the, uh voting rights bill was passed in 65 And if we we include the 70s so say we just for the sake of
0: of of the sake of it we stop at the 80s let's let's stop
1: it like 1982 since it's 2022 yeah um oh i did the math wrong i I got 1780
0: (laughs) get your life get your life together we out here trying to do simple math. We we promise we educate. We are it. products of the United States public school system. <laughs> Maybe we should have been doing that new math. This episode of Beyond the Talk
1: it's brought to you by the U.S. Education Department. <laughs> the point is that we are not that far removed from uh, the Civil Rights era, yeah, and it, I mean, about forty years. If you really want to put it in perspective, millennials are the first generation of Americans to live outside of the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. And millennials is a wide group. I think the oldest millennial is probably like 40 something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, ask y'all parents. Shit, y'all parents probably remember something. Mm-hmm. They probably remember something. So we actually gonna play, play somebody
0: that just talks about their experience during that time and how was it being black in a woman during this time? This pivotal And time. then, like, what did that, how did, do you think that impacted your health? We have a couple clips.
4: Later clip. some people could pick two and three hundred pounds a day and they made like six dollars if they did yeah and then when we worked in tobacco we got paid three dollars no chopping cotton we got paid three dollars a day so that was fifteen dollars a week yep. Yeah, and then we babysit For anybody, it was 50 cents an hour. And when time came for lunch, you couldn't go in the house to eat. You had to eat outside by yourself.
3: And how was that?
4: I mean, it's just what what it was. You knew you wasn't going in the house. If you worked in the house, you still didn't sit at the table with them. yep that's how it was you You knew that from the beginning. oh, uh, you knew that you knew you weren't going in
3: unless
4: you, you was in the house to clean up they you just clean their house and got your how long it took like two dollars or whatever fifty cent well, yeah, that was just it they do you knew what you was there for and uh that's what you did yeah it ain't always been a rose of
0: eight a bed of roses so yeah now we're here you know modern day 40-ish years later um and i feel like we can see that the impact of you know racism sexism classism you know gender-based discrimination it shaped the way black women think you Mm -hmm. know it shaped our sense of what we feel is home what we see as safety um and it somewhat I could argue shaped how we parent um and we talked about that earlier of just how certain parenting styles can lead to certain type of traumatic experiences but it's like an intergenerational trauma because Mm -hmm. it's passed on from generation to generation for instance I just think of a where for certain generations that were closer to slavery it was hard to say I love you it was hard to to show that type of love because love was shown differently than saying I love you Mm -hmm. and so now we fast forward to today and now you have younger generations like pouring back and saying you know okay I want to show like I I say I love you that's a usual thing because you know they broke the chain. Like, our parents broke the chain and started saying, I love you. And we started saying, I love you back. So now you see, you know, maybe our grandmas, our our great grandmothers, they're now breaking the chain and seeing the impact of just a simple word. And that's just a little small example. but.
1: I think it's called yeah. what? Um, healthy hypervigilance. Yes. <laughs>
0: healthy hypervigilance, where you have a
1: a pattern of behavior that comes from a traumatic experience, and you pass it down, and it's passed down and passed down and passed down, and
0: in in particularly a behavior that's centered around safety and survival. Yeah. And survival. <laughs> yeah. That's really when, yeah, we begin to see different different styles of parenting. Um,
1: I think too, though. I I have to wonder about the the implications on like the mental health of black women because of being hypervigilant and because of having to be um, resilient and passing down that hypervigilance to their kids cuz I think of like how a lot of times we're gaslit, right? And we talked about how um hysteria used to be a thing, like it yeah. used to be like a diagnosis for women, mm-hmm. and especially women of color, be like, "Oh, she's she's just hysterical." Like just slap her and give her some penicillin or yeah, something like, i don't uh, know what they did back yeah, in they the take, day but
0: they take pain on a different level like mm-hmm. this is there's there's nothing wrong with them
1: she's just super hysterical but i think mm-hmm. that comes from like knowing that i have to be vigilant because i know what can happen and then people gaslighting you and being like no no that's not right. You're not, you don't have to worry about that. Why do you think that way? Why do you feel like that? You mm-hmm. shouldn't feel like that. And then you're like, well, damn, am I crazy? <laughs> am right. I crazy? It's like, uh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so also could talk about like how we feel, you know, the black mother son relationship is a lot different than the black mother daughter relationship where mm-hmm. a lot of times, and I, and know we would probably argue that either if a black father is in their life like okay maybe a daddy's girl thing but i think overall parenting is still different between black women and black men because you're expected to just take more you should you're expected to be able to handle this like i know she she's smarter than than him so it's like she's going she's going to be all right where with black men they get coddled a lot more Mm -hmm than black women and that's just that's just a fact I, it is. like so i don't want to hear no shit about what do you mean and dot dot go ask don't your gaslight mama. us go and remember our
1: disclaimer this is not a man bashing session this is intersecting identities through the lens of black women because yeah, yeah no i mean my brother is disabled and so there is sort of a difference there mm. but um i grew up you know you're smart and you're expected to do more. You're expected to be more. You're expected to whatever. It's like, well, damn, like, can I just be <laughs> like, can yeah. I just, can I just Can be? I just do this? Yeah. I, I think that's another thing that, um, and again, we don't have kids. Like, so I don't want nobody in the comments being like, you're not a mother. You don't know. We don't have kids. We yeah. have pets and plants. Right. So yeah, <laughs> don't come can, for us. <laughs> and look, I
0: can only speak to the, how I experienced my, the daughter, uh, mother and, how I've witnessed seeing the mother son relationship in my own life, and I think it was that I'm uh you know tell tell my brother what the fuck is up yeah opposed to me it wasn't it wasn't no breath held yeah like, it was the no more, punches pulled what verbal assault <laughs> ready to go locked and loaded right. locked up but with him it's oh, well maybe and it's like well I just want to be parented the same. Okay. That's it. Let's get
1: equal treatment yeah, of children. Let's
0: there's <laughs> no, especially after we're grown. It is different, like, growing up as a child and, you know, okay, maybe you're older or whatever. Well, yeah, so those are just, a, you know, a couple examples. We also want to talk about this, this impact on maternal health mm. from, you know, leading up to today. Um, and I think although slavery was abolished in 1865, we found some research where someone uh, was stating that, you know, there's there hasn't been enough time to eliminate the physical effects of slavery in our genetic, you know, cellular makeup. Mm-hmm. So this could contribute to the disproportionately high levels of low birth weight in African-American infants in the 21st century. Um, and, of course, black maternal health rates are, high, are like, high right now so we don't even that's and while they have you know kind of eliminated some we it's worth talking about
3: you know i I got pregnant with alex at i was 39 Mm -hmm. when i got pregnant with alex Mm -hmm. and you know that's high risk i'm a black woman the doctor that i had i mean he i would come in and he would be like okay do you have any questions Tell me what's going on. I I don't I don't know. I mean, I'm not the doctor. I don't know. What do you want me to ask? <laughs> that was the gist of my doc, my prenatal appointment. Him asking me, did I have any questions? Mm. Telling me not not saying let now now I have a counterpart who was who was let's say lighter than me. Mm. She was pregnant at the same time. <laughs> she was getting three D ultrasound um imaging. She was getting, and, and she was uh, over the age of 35 as well. She's been sent over to the University of South Carolina to get uh, special testing to make sure, you know, there was no issues going on with her baby. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, so when are I going to get an ultrasound? He like, oh, we're going to wait till you know, around, around 24 weeks. I'm like, 24 weeks? 24 weeks? We know what the sex of the baby is by then.
1: I think, too, like, have you heard the... the- notion that when a woman's born she has all the eggs in her body that she'll ever need to make kids oh yeah Mm -hmm. and so once i was in my mom's womb i had all of my eggs and when my mom was in my grandmother's womb she had all of her eggs so like before we're even born we have stuff that's passed down to us before we're even fully formed Mm -hmm. and i think it's interesting to think about the the health effects of slavery and how um this study talks about how we haven't had enough time to physically get away from those physical effects being Mm -hmm. um manifested in black women yeah and i think i mean That's crazy that I have my child inside of me right now. It's just not fertilized, of course. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. once she's fully formed, my grandkids will also be inside of me. And so whatever trauma I have, if it's unresolved, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Damn
0: it, I'm sorry, kids. I'm sorry. And and according to this, some shit you just don't got nothing to do with. Like, it's your ancestors from slavery. Like, what can... We really do with that, and there's up. There was other talk about um, these things called telomeres that are on the outside of our genetic cells. So don't quote me, but I think what they're saying is that when you experience stress so long and prolonged stress, that you can pass that stress down through your gen, through your genetic, uh, your genetic structure. Makeup, yeah, makeup. Yeah and over time these telomeres that are supposed to protect your cells they get unraveled because of this stress Mm -hmm. and so technically we're getting those cells passed down for us which is um which was a part of the defense with post-traumatic slave syndrome where that's kind of why we could get that passed down to us because Mm -hmm. it's it's getting passed down to our in our genetic makeup but yeah it's a lot to unpack there and that alone could be an episode so we're not gonna get too much into not it. gonna
1: take you down a rabbit hole but we just want y'all to see but i mean when you mention that thinking about you know the ptsd that we have from slavery and how it's cellular and how it's kind of still embedded in us to this day i think it kind of lines up with the suicide rates for black women and mm-hmm. especially for black trans women who go through a whole nother sort of compounded um kind of mental and emotional and physical kind of thing that they go through mm-hmm. so Um, Just some statistics for y'all. When you look at uh, suicide rates and when you look at especially um, rates of murder and violent assault, um, in 2013, 77 percent of victims were transgender women of color. When you look at violent crimes and assault, um, 85 percent of those victims were transgender women and 84 percent of those victims were people of color. Um, and so you kind of have, again, intersecting identities that are mm-hmm. falling victim to these crimes. 24% of people had no known relationship to their killer, and 36% um, said that their killer was an acquaintance. It be the niggas you know, man. It's always watch the niggas you know. Watch
0: them. <laughs> on this. Watch them. So it's that's a- um,
1: how did we get here? And I know we gave y'all a lot. I, we said it was going to be a lot because we're talking about intersecting identities, and there's billions of combinations of intersecting identities but as always we're solution oriented so where do we go from here what's the solution A big solution, honestly, is more accountability, right? Like, coming off the heels of Will Smith smacking the taste out of Chris Rock's mouth, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the fact that the large part of the think pieces and opinions disregarded the disrespect and embarrassment of a Black woman, like, we urge people, including Black men, um, I almost want to say, like, specifically Black men, right? Like, to be accountable for disrespecting and not protecting Black women. And I found it so surprising that the same people screaming, protect Black women, protect Black women, were the same people saying, Will and Jada can't take a joke. Yo. It was just a joke. So the gaslighting, it's, it's really wild. Like hey, it's, I'm struggling really to put it into words for real for real. It's really wild because anyway, now we know that this is a solution that requires a cultural shift. Some solutions are policy-based. Some solutions are based in things that we could just write it into law and it's different. But this is something that requires a cultural shift and more people outwardly seen protecting Black women. But it's worth addressing that the energy that we have as two Black women, okay, um, we would like to see change because when we think about all the different ways that we've discussed multiples identities of Black women and how they interact and they produce different experiences and the ways that it impacts our health, um, <clears throat> I think it's important for this cultural shift to take place honestly and I think it just comes from more black men you know being held accountable because I don't know about nobody else but my baby gonna step out me okay bitch and I, I've yet to find a man and yeah. he out here, he a, if it's a king out here, step up. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Cause You know what I'm saying? They will not be named and they will not get time on this pod, much time on this podcast. But there are people out here that honestly think that they can have these damaging thoughts about Black women and disregard and disrespect Black women and still think they about to smack cheeks with a Black woman. So I'm willing I'm willing to damage my health to see not only the progression of myself, but the progression of the black
1: race. This episode is not a bashing session for black men, regardless of how black women are treated, regardless of how we're disrespected. At the end of the day, we are always the forefront of every movement. And what does that tell you? We love y'all. we love y'all and we're here for y'all and we just want y'all to be here for us the same way that we're here for you and so in order to do that we have to have these honest conversations we have to have these conversations that are a little bit heated and a little bit passionate because until we can be honest with each other we're never going to face true liberation that's really what it boils down to and
0: you know we just hope that that accountability uh produces um among black men and black women
1: we do have other solutions but one last thing about accountability if you really love somebody if they're really your friend if they're really your your homeboy homegirl hold these people accountable bro it beat it what we say earlier it be the niggas you know man yeah it really do hold these people accountable your homeboy disrespecting black women hold them ac- your homegirl disrespecting black women disrespecting black men hold them accountable bro like It's a cultural shift, which means it starts with us.
0: Next solution on some more, you know what I'm saying, some more calm down solutions and some more (laughs) like really getting at the point of how do we improve health among Black women who are experiencing the impacts of these intersecting identities is for us to Bulk up our efforts to better support and protect black women in health care you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. a lot of what we talked about was how our history can impact our health mm-hmm. um, you know maternal health and stress health. you know what I'm saying those type of things support education and training for public health professionals and mm-hmm. all type of health professionals because a lot of them don't understand the impact of these intersectional identities on our health. Right. And they can really be the catalyst for supporting these policies that promote sexual and reproductive health equity. So public health agencies overall need to broaden their partnerships to Mm -hmm. include non-traditional partners. You need to be speaking with housing. You need to be speaking with the education department. You need to be speaking with employer partners because that is how we understand the full experience that is faced by a black woman, especially a black woman in poverty mm-hmm. and how we pull them out. Cause the first step is understanding. Yep. So yeah, that, that's, that's just, this just what I want to say, but we, we definitely got another solution. I think um, yeah. it's
1: perfect. I think my favorite thing is self-care. Like, that that's my solution to any and every issue is self-care and especially radical self-care, right? So the radical piece comes in because oftentimes women are given the luxury to engage in self-care, right? It's, it's part of our societal beauty standard: You get your nails done, your hair done, your facials, your toes, whatever. But radical self-care is honestly, the radical part comes in because it's all about pushing against the narrative and making self-care a top priority, right? I love this new narrative in pop culture that I see a lot of Black women are saying, um, I don't want to be strong anymore, right? Like, I don't want to be the strong Black woman. I don't want to neglect myself in service of others. And to all Black women, all women, but all Black women, I truly, truly hope that you are listening. And I hope that you consider how can I engage in radical self-care? like for real think of a time you wanted to take time for yourself and go to the gym or attend a yoga class or have coffee at your favorite coffee shop but you had to go to work you had to take care of your kids you had to do whatever you were told to do right and you could not make time for yourself I know that I catch myself doing this from time to time honestly I catch myself doing this a lot and I have to make time for you like Kristen make some time for yourself girl like fuck these people (laughs) but Mm -hmm. do you ever do that like do you ever just
0: girl yes all the (laughs) time especially when you feel like a lot of your identity is tied to your work Mm. and so for me that's something I struggle with where if I'm not productive in my education Mm -hmm. or pursuing this PhD then obviously then I'm not investing in myself But I had to understand, you have to separate self-care between your work. Like my, my, um, program advisor literally cut me off one day and was like, you are not your work. Mm. I was literally trying to make my whole like identity about, you know, sticking up for black people and making, improving the black community, my life's work. Mm -hmm. And she said, you are not your work. And understanding how I can go for the Black community and want to improve outcomes in the Black community, but I can also separate that from my life. Mm-hmm. And that was profound for me. That yeah. was like, oh, bitch, you got to constantly
1: be reminded of that. Because um, I think, was it James Baldwin that said, uh, to be Black and conscious is to constantly be in a state of rage? Yes. Because we, I mean, we go through these, for one, we live in a society that values productivity and values... Mm-hmm. Success measure success by how much you get done and how much money you make with how much you get done. And then, as Black women, we have this this thing. I guess you would call it the strong Black woman schema or the superwoman schema, where we are everything to everyone. And part of that comes from
3: You're helping the, others.
1: It comes from the oppression that we face, and it comes from the history that has been passed down to Black people in in the United States. Um, And so I'm glad that she said that. Like, you are not your work.
3: You know, I have a good life. I have two great kids, Um, you know, financially secure. I pretty much achieved all the things that I was, like, shooting for. I said, in some cases, I even exceeded beyond what what my expectations were. Because it wasn't my expectation to do 20 years in the military. I was going to do three years, get my money for school, and go on about my business but i did 27 years because of my health i made the decision to step back because i looked in the mirror and i didn't look like the soldier that i saw and i didn't want to be that example that they say you know female she weak she this, she that i was sick out yeah you were so focused on trying to do things. Now that your mind is like, relaxed, you don't have a lot of distractions, all this, the stress and stuff that you put your body through, your body kept score.
0: Another aspect of radical self-care is making it fun. Mm -hmm. Like I love telling Kristen about Kristen about this. Like, You have to make whatever you do and invest yourself in, make it fun, make it exciting, Mm. because, like, that's not that's going to be something that really helps you keep it going. And even pulling in an accountability partner, Kristen and I both know how important sisterhood and accountability is. And Mm. I don't think I could engage. And a lot of the self-care I do without the many pats on the back I get from my friends and family, Mm -hmm. which then signal to me like, okay, this is a good thing. And this is something I should value doing. Right. And the last part, which is going to be hard, but it's being intentional Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. your Mm self-care and accepting that it may not always be easy or fun. So like, I know I just said, make it fun. But I think that this is, again, look, balance. it's balanced. balance. Because in certain things, some self-care requires those hard things that you've been putting off and avoiding for so long mm-hmm. that when you first try to engage in that self-care mechanism, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun to engage in at first. But you got to trust the process mm-hmm. in finding realistic time in your day where it can be best executed because nothing makes me angrier than somebody saying I want to do something and just waking up the next day and being like yeah I'm gonna just find some time to do it no (laughs) you have a life you've been living before this goal you need to incorporate it in the life that you've been living mm-hmm. so it needs to be realistic so you i know you don't heard of them smart smart goals smart it needs goals. to be specific measurable attainable mm-hmm. realistic and timely mm-hmm. smart goals is what gets you through and i think you ha- you need your self self-care, self-care Scheduled in your daily agenda i know mm-hmm. i'm very passionate about this so i'm just y'all I'm she's a, so
1: passionate about self-care i'm a, like, she, I'm a daily bit literally all of our friends she'll be like when we're on the phone we're on facetime she's like so um you you need some rest like you need to you should take it she told me <laughs> what i was telling her like i was kind of stressed at work because i work part-time i was telling her kind of stressed and whatnot she was like, yeah, tell them you need to take a walk. Like just take a 30-minute walk. And I was like, in addition to my 30-minute lunch break, she's like, hell yeah. They don't what? prioritize health. For me. Bro, what?
0: Like, I can't. It is, I feel like you that speaks to you may also need to require your support system to orient themselves to this new normal. Mm-hmm. And that look, hey, I wish not to be disturbed are pulled away because this time is necessary to mm-hmm. me. So if what you're calling me or pulling me away from isn't an emergency, don't call me between the hours of two and four. Hey
1: and listen, I'll take it a step further. Uh don't answer. <laughs> <Ooh>! <laughs> Baby. There's a lot of claps in this episode. <laughs> I had a couple times where my coworkers will call me on my off days. Uh I had one coworker, he left something at the job child, and he needed my key to get back in and I wasn't going back to work for like the next three days. Baby, that man called me about 15 times. And guess what? Every single time he got hit with a you've reached the voicemail of Kristen Wells. Thank you so much for your call. I'm unavailable right now because um I'm off the clock. Okay. Self-care is important. And like Clisha was saying, if you're not used to practicing certain habits and patterns of self-care. It's going to feel uncomfortable when you first start to do it. Like, choosing yourself, putting yourself first is going to feel uncomfortable at first. But I promise you, you keep it going, it'll change your life. It'll change your
0: life. Okay. So, more moral of the story, make self-care a part You know what I'm saying? Black women are tremendously uh, resilient. Okay? Mm-hmm. But we hope by now Folks, understand why we shouldn't have to be. We've been through enough. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And if you are not a Black woman, email or DM us and let us know how you intend to show up for a Black woman in your life. So
1: until next time, Village, (laughs) this is Beyond the Talk. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Scariest thing about being a black woman? You can't close your eyes on the scary parts. You gotta be your own candle after dark. Just a haze till you turn into somebody's street light. Having a body to defend, but a body not allowed to fight cause that body is already a disciplinary infraction. A distraction. Handmade by craftsman, shipped, unmade in horror stories, reframe when you get hip. The colonization was always in the framing of the three little pigs
0: but they made we the wolf dangerous we
2: have pride
0: how hard we had to fight